You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm on my way to the train station when I find a mirror leaning against a chain-link fence across the street from the San Francisco Food Bank. It's the kind of block where people leave stuff in the street, figuring that someone who wants it will take it away. Usually they're right. Half my apartment is furnished with street finds. I had parked my car in the last empty space on the block, which happened to be right beside the mirror. The mirror is a circle of glass about the size of a dinner plate, set in a carved wooden frame that had been that had been painted black and gold in an inexpert effort at antiquing. I peer into the circle. My reflection is silvery gray in the morning light. A ripple in the glass runs through my image so that one eye bulges like Quasimodo and one side of my mouth is warped. It's a little like looking into the porthole of a submarine that someone made with a whittling knife and a lot of wood. I pick the mirror up. If I decide I don't want it, I can always leave it by the fence for the next scavenger. When I put the mirror down in the trunk of my car, I notice that I've cut my finger. A bright smear of blood marks the mirror, and a bead of blood swells on the pad of my index finger. I fish in my pack for a tissue to staunch the flow of blood, then I head for the train station. The first time I went looking for the train station at 22nd Street in Pennsylvania, I passed it three times before I finally saw it. I think of it as a secret train station. It's just a sign and a set of stairs by a little bridge over the train tracks on 22nd Street. Walk down the stairs and you'll find a couple of benches and a ticket machine. That's it. That's the train station. I sit on one of the benches. Far above me, the freeway crosses over 22nd Street and the train tracks, a soaring concrete arc supported by massive white columns on either side of the tracks. Morning sunshine filters through the chain link fence at street level and shines onto my bench. The white support columns rise into the light. The patches of neon bright graffiti that decorate the base of each column glows like stained glass. The place has kind of a post-industrial cathedral look. I watch the swallows that have built nests on the underside of the freeway. It's spring and they're flying to and fro feeding their babies. They don't seem to care that semis and SUVs are thundering over their nests at 70 miles an hour. In the evening when I return, I know I will hear frogs chirping melodically in the stream that runs in the little gully just behind the benches. There's a stream and a tiny marsh where rushes grow. I like this forgotten bit of wildland hidden away beneath the city streets. I work at a toy company in Redwood City. I'm part of the quality control department, and my job is to ensure that products meet safety standards and are age appropriate. Today, we are having a meeting about fairies. Among three to six-year-old girls, fairies of the Tinkerbell gossamer wing variety are a very hot topic. Little girls want to believe in fairies. That's what the marketing guy says anyway. He was at the team's first meeting, but he hasn't been back since. The toy company is creating a line of Twinkle Fairy dolls. That product is behind schedule, so far behind that no one from that team has time to meet with us. Our team is developing an online fairyland that goes with the dolls. Each doll will come with a unique internet code that lets the owner enter the online world. 
In that world, the doll's owner will have her own fairy home that she can furnish with fairy furniture. She will have a fairy avatar that she can dress with fairy clothes. It's a rather consumer-oriented fairyland. <laughs> Players purchase their furniture and clothes with fairy dollars. Or would that be fairy gold? And if it's fairy gold, will it wither into dead leaves in the light of day? These are questions I do not ask at the meeting. <laughs> the question of the day is, what sort of world do the fairies live in? Is it a forest world where they frolic in leafy, leafy groves and shelter under mushroom caps? Or is it a fairy village with cobblestone streets and thatched huts? Or is it some mixture of the two? Though this choice has no safety implications, I'm happy to stick around and talk about it. Why don't we just ask marketing what they want, says Derek, the web designer. The temperature is supposed to top 100 today, but Derek is wearing black jeans, black boots, and a black t-shirt from a Robot Wars competition. <laughs> I've been to four morning meetings with this team, and Derek has been late to every one of them, rolling in without apology, his eyebrows, right one pierced in three places, lowered in a perpetual scowl. He wants to look surly, but his face is pale and round and soft with baby fat, and he can't quite pull it off. Derek is not happy to be on the ferry project. <laughs> Another team is working on a line of remote control monster trucks. And I think he'd rather be developing an online monster truck world. Tiffany, the project manager, a sweet young thing, sweet young woman in her 20s, shakes her head. We want to be authentic, she says. <laughs> Derek stares at her. <laughs> authentic. We're talking about fairies here. In case you don't know, there are no fairies. <laughs> Tracy, the content developer, steps in. I think Tiffany means we want our fairies to match the child's concept of fairies. We want them to feel authentic. Sherlock Holmes believe in, believed in fairies, says Tiffany. Isn't that what you told me the other day? She looked at me. Not quite. I correct her, trying to be gentle. Arthur Conan Doyle, the author who wrote Sherlock Holmes, believed in fairies. Back in 1917, two little girls took pictures of the fairies in their garden, and Doyle was certain that the photos were real. What were they, swamp gas, asks Tracy. <laughs> She's a former elementary school teacher. She's interested in pretty much everything. Much simpler than that, I say. About 60 years later, one of the girls, in her 80s by that time, admitted that she had cut the drawings of fairies out of a book, posed the cutouts in the garden with her friend, and taken the photos. Arthur Conan Doyle was fooled by paper cutouts? Tracy is intrigued. I shrug. People believe what they want to believe. Let's stop here for a minute and talk about beliefs. For my dissertation in child development, I worked with four-year-olds testing what they knew about the world. Here's an experiment. Show a group of four-year-olds a tall, thin glass and a short, wide glass. Ask them which one will hold more water. The answer will be unanimous, the tall, thin glass. Now, fill the short glass with water and pour that water into the tall glass, demonstrating that the water fills the tall glass to the brim and there is still water left over in the short glass. Ask again which glass holds more. Again, the answer will be unanimous, the tall, thin glass. <laughs> Until age five, six, seven, children have an unshakable method for judging volume. If the container is taller, it holds more. Beliefs are tricky. Seeing something doesn't mean you believe it. On the other hand, not seeing something doesn't mean you don't believe it. 
I don't see why anyone would believe in fairies, Derek says. Who's going to believe in something no one has ever seen? I consider him steadily for a moment. Do you believe in molecules, I ask? Late that night, I'm sitting at my computer checking my email. I catch a flicker, flicker of movement from the corner of my eye. I turn to see what it was. Nothing is moving. The mirror that I found near the train station is leaning against the far wall of the room. My cat, Flash, stares in the direction of the mirror, his ears forward, his tail twitching. Everyone knows that there are things that only cats can see. In my house, Flash is the cat who watches those invisible things. He frequently gives his full attention to a patch of empty air for hours at a time. Godzilla, the other cat, usually can't be bothered with such nonsense. But tonight, Godzilla has taken up a post beside Flash, staring in the same direction at the same emptiness. What's up, guys, I ask him. But they just keep staring in the direction of the mirror, vigilant, concerned. They don't trust this mirror. I pick it up and put it on top of the bureau, leaning it against the wall. The cats continue to watch with great suspicion. I can sympathize with that. Mirrors are tricky. They pretend to show you the world as you know it, but they don't really. For one thing, they reverse right and left. Wave your right hand and your mirror image waves its left hand. Now a mirror reverses right and left, but it doesn't reverse up and down. Think about that. <laughs> but don't think about it for too long. That way lies madness. I am thinking about mirrors and left and right and up and down when the phone rings. It's Johnny, the owner of the board and care home where my father lives. Whenever I stop by to visit my dad, Johnny tells me how my father has been doing and fills me in on details that I usually don't want to know. I have learned about the need for stool softeners and socks with no skid soles. I have discussed the merits of different varieties of walkers, one called, without irony, the Merry Walker, though I see very little Mary about it. My father was once a chemist. My father was once a member of Mensa. My father was once a very smart, very sarcastic, and somewhat hostile man. Of all those attributes, only the sarcasm and hostility remain. A few weeks ago, when I was visiting my father, Johnny told me that my father had threatened to kick one of the other residents in the balls. He gets very angry, Johnny said. It's the Alzheimer's. I nodded. It wasn't really the Alzheimer's. It was how Dad had always been. Dad did not suffer fools gladly. He considered most people to be fools. And when he met a, met a fool, he was not above saying, I ought to kick him in the balls. <laughs> Johnny preferred to blame my father's idiosyncrasies on Alzheimer's. Johnny was a sweet guy who chose to believe that people were inherently nice. Who am I to step between a man and his beliefs? <laughs> but tonight, Johnny is facing a challenge. Your father won't stop talking, he says. I can hear my father holding forth in the background. He seems to be delivering a lecture, something about physical chemistry, I believe. He is telling his students that they have to infer the interactions of chemicals by the results in their test tubes. You can't see the molecules. He's been at it for two hours, Johnny says. I've told him it's time for bed, but he won't stop. Johnny sounds very tired. Have you tried telling him the class period is over, I ask. <laughs> no, Johnny says. I hear him speak to my father. Mr. Murphy, class is over. Professor Murphy, I prompt over the phone. It's been at least 50 years since my father was a professor. 
Professor Murphy, Chani says. Class is over. My father is still talking to his students. Let me speak to him, I tell Chani. It's your daughter, Chani says. She needs to talk to you. I hear my father cursing about the interruption. Hello, he says crossly. Hey, Dad, class is over. What are you talking about? This is your daughter. I'm calling to tell you that class is over. Is it? Well, I was just wrapping up. You'd better let the students go, I say, not wanting him to continue wrapping up. Wrapping up could take hours. They have to study for finals. They'd better study. His voice is the growl of a demanding instructor. Then a pause. I have to get ready myself, he says, as if suddenly remembering something. Get ready? What for? I'm leaving tomorrow. Several times over the last months, my father, of the last few months, my father has mentioned that he is going on a trip. Usually it's to Canada. Sometimes he's not sure where he's going. I've learned not to ask. You can pack in the morning, I say. You'll have time then. Yes, he says, in the morning. In the morning, he will remember none of this. Hello? It's Johnny again. Thanks. I hang up, hoping my father will go to bed peacefully at last. As I turn away from the bureau, I see a flicker of movement in the mirror. When I look again, there's nothing there but the cats, watching reproachfully. You don't have to take the stairs to get to the 22nd Street Station. You can make your way directly from 22nd Street to the railroad tracks along a dirt and gravel road that leads down the side of the gully. Just a few steps off 22nd Street, it looks like a country lane. On one side, tall grasses and wild fennel. On the other, a couple of blackberry bush bushes working their way up to becoming a thicket. That's the way I take today. I have a rolling backpack, but it doesn't roll well on the gravel. Halfway down the slope, it catches, a pebble lodged between its plastic wheel and the plastic wheel housing. I squat down to free the wheel. The stone that has stopped my progress isn't just any pebble. In college, I spent a summer at an archeological dig sifting through Arizona dust to find fragments of broken pots and bits of worked stone in an ancient Anasazi trading post. The stone that falls into my hand when I turn the wheel of my backpack is a very tiny worked flint, about a centimeter long. I can see minuscule circles, each just a couple of millimeters across, where someone has flaked away the stone. Puzzled, I put the tiny tool in my pocket. As I do so, I catch a movement out of the corner of my eye. A bird, I think. I'm getting a little tired of this. I was up too late thinking about Dad and his imaginary trip. Just a trick of the eye, a trick of the light, nothing more. I make my way down the hill to the train station, thinking about what might live in the greenery that surrounds me. A few weeks back, I saw raccoons crossing Fell Street near Golden Gate Park, a big bushy mama coon with an extravagantly ringed tail followed by three youngsters. When Mama saw me watching, she turned and gave me such a look. No fear there. She would take me apart, separating limb from limb, then head on over to the 7-Eleven for cigarettes. <laughs> there are coyotes in Golden Gate Park. Biologists think they came from the wildlands just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, crossing the Great Suspension Span late at night. They feed on rats and cats and maybe small yappy dogs, all of which the city has in abundance. <laughs> Foxes and possums live in the cities, wherever a little bit of wild land persists. If there are coons and foxes and coyotes and possums, why not other creatures? Small, wild, living in the gaps, in the gullies, in the ravines, in the half-hidden places underneath. 
Tiffany has set the agenda for today's meeting. She wants to establish the specifics of our particular ferries. Tiffany believes in sweet and very commercial ferries mm -hmm. dressed in pink tulle and glitter. They fly on shimmering wings made of child-safe mylar, I think, <laughs> and are similar to Tinkerbell, but not so similar that they'll trigger a cease and desist order. <laughs> the way I figure it, you can choose what kind of fairy you want to believe in. Tracy's fairies harken back to the classics. Think Midsummer Night's Dream and Yates. Her fairies wear elegant green dresses. They have a queen, of course. They have fabulous parties where they dance all night. Tracy lives alone. Derek's fairies sleep late. They are dark-eyed and sultry, dressing in black and looking for trouble. <laughs> I think some of them are transgender. <laughs> and what of my fairies? I fingered the stone tool in my pocket. In the foggy chill of San Francisco's summer, my fairies wear clothing made of tanned mouse leather. Mm -hmm. They feed on frogs' legs, hunting in the marsh with stone blades. They are grimy, hard-scrabble fairies that chip tools from stone and drink from the stream. They'd mug Victorian flower fairies and take all their stuff. <laughs> what do you think? Forest or village? Tiffany is polling the meeting, getting each member of the team to vote. Derek says city. Tracy says forest. It's my turn. Wilder civilized. Can't we have it both ways, I ask? Why not? Dirty little fairies crouching in the litter by the stream, chipping stone into knives, strapping blades on, into, onto spear handles made of pencils and pens dropped by commuters. My kind of fairy. <laughs> At today's meeting, Tiffany, Tiffany's the project leader, Tiffany wants to establish the specifics of our particular fairies. Tiffany believes in fairies that fly on shimmering wings, made of child-safe mylar, I think. Her fairies are similar to Tinkerbell, but not so similar that they'll trigger a cease and desist order. Jane's fairies, Jane's the graphic designer, Jane's fairies harken back to the classics. Think Midsummer Night's Dream and Yates. Her fairies wear elegant green dresses. They have a queen, of course. They have fabulous parties where they dance all night. By the way, Jane lives alone. Rocky's fairies sleep late. They are dark-eyed and sultry, dressing in black and looking for trouble. I think some of them are transgender, which makes sense if you know Peter Pan. When Wendy returns from Neverland, she tells her mother that the new fairies live in nests at the tops of trees. The mauve ones are boys and the white ones are girls, she says, and the blue ones are just little sillies who are not quite sure what they are. That's from the book, not the movie. I don't think Disney believes in transgender fairies. <laughs> the way I figure it, you can choose what kind of fairies you want to believe in. I fingered the stone tool in my pocket. In the foggy chill of San Francisco's summer, my fairies wear clothing made of tanned mouse leather. They are grimy, hard scrabble fairies that chip, stools chip tools from stone and drink from the stream. They hunt in the marsh with stone blades and feed on frogs' legs. They'd mug Victorian flower fairies and take their stuff. <laughs> what do you think, forest or village? Tiffany is polling the meeting, getting each member of the team to vote. Rocky says city, Jane says forest. It's my turn. Wild or civilized? Why can't we have it both ways, I ask. Why not? Dirty little fairies crouching in the litter by the stream, chipping stone into knives, strapping blades onto spear handles made of pens and pencils dropped by commuters. My kind of fairy. After work, I go to the board and care home to visit my dad. I stop by the grocery store on my way and buy a basket of fresh raspberries. 
These days, I always bring something to eat. Finger food is best. We sit in the living room, my father in the recliner and I in a straight back chair, and we eat raspberries. I've learned not to ask many questions. Questions are difficult. More often than not, he has no answers, or his answers relate to the distant past, or halfway through an answer, he forgets what he was saying. Best not to ask too much. I tell my father many things these days. He likes to listen. When he listens, it does not matter that the words are slippery and sentences betray him. I found this on the path to the train station, I tell him. I hold out the tiny stone tool. My father examines the blade. His hands shake. The skin of his arm is marked with purple, dark purple age spots. He gives the stone back. Worked stone, he says. Microlith. Basically, that's a technical term for tiny worked stone. I found a mirror in the street the other day, I say. That's good, he says. A complete sentence, not bad. Short enough that he can get through it without losing his way. Sentences are trickier than you realize, long and twisty. It's easy to get lost. I need, he begins. He's pushing his luck now, working on a longer sentence. What does he need? I need a mirror. Really? I'll bring you the one I found, I tell him. Does he really need a mirror, or is it just the word that came most quickly to mind? He nods. Don't forget. Another easy sentence. I care about my father in a grudging sort of way. My mother died when I was nine. She committed suicide jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Even as a child, I recognized that she was a drama queen, a flamboyant woman given to grand gestures, to great joys and great depression. Today, she might be identified as bipolar. My father, on the other hand, is solid and unemotional. After my mother's death, he took care of me in an awkward, casual, ham-handed sort of way. I never went hungry, and I never got hugged. It was a balance of sorts. I take after my mother. I understand drama. I understand depression. And I understand the appeal of the dark and foggy waters beneath the bridge. Don't forget, my father says again. We eat raspberries in companionable silence. Godzilla, that's one of the cats, Godzilla is sleeping on top of the mirror, which is lying flat on the bureau. He was there this morning when I left for work. He's there now as I sit at my desk and check my email. Usually he supervises when I open a can of cat food for him and his brother. But today he jumps down from the bureau only after I set the food on the floor. He eats quickly, then returns to the mirror, gazing into it intently, sniffing it carefully, then lying down on top of it once again. Curled up, he completely covers the glass surface. I pat my lap and call to him. He lifts his head and regards me with that slit-eyed cat look that one of my friends says is how cats smile. He's not about to leave his post. His brother Flash is prowling the apartment restlessly. Cats have theories. Every cat owner knows that. The cats can't and won't tell you their theories. You must deduce the theories from their behavior. Then you have theories about the cat's theories. If you modify your behavior in response to your theories about their theories, you may change their theories. It's an endlessly recursive loop. The viewer affects the system. It's the Heisenberg uncertainty principle with cats. <laughs> I let Godzilla sleep. I am doing online research about fairies, not because I need to, but because I can't sleep. When I'm insomniac, I find doing research online very comforting. I used to walk on the Golden Gate Bridge at night, but doing research online is safer. Mm -hmm. 
I find information on Conan Doyle's belief in fairies. I find a discussion of microliths or pygmy flints, blades of worked stone that some claimed were made by the little people. I find hundreds of images of Victorian fairies. Somewhere along the way, I find Rocky's blog. Mostly, it's one of those extremely tedious personal blogs that I'm amazed that anyone writes and even more amazed that anyone reads. A description of an art opening he attended with photos of his friends, all in black, of course. Discussions of his plans to attend Burning Man. And a long list of fairy links. Rocky, it turns out, has done a lot of research that he has not shared at work. He has links to fairy porn, of course. Yes, there is fairy porn. He has links to sites considering the connections between fairies and alien abductions, as well as sites about the original Celtic fairies, amoral creatures that are capable of great malevolence. In Celtic tradition, when someone died, people said they went to be with the fairies. Being touched by a fairy, according to one site, was commonly recognized as the cause of a stroke. No sweet and beautiful fairies, no gossamer wings. At the next meeting of the Fairyland team, Tiffany gathers ideas for the portal to our fairy site. At Disney's fairy site, the splash screen has a sprinkling of fairy dust and the words, believing is just the beginning. Tiffany asks the group for an image and words that will capture the essence of our site. A black mirror, I say, a portal to another word, world, and the words, clap if you believe in fairies. I don't see the need to specify the type of fairy you might believe in. Dark-eyed and sultry, sweet-faced and dressed in pink. That doesn't matter. Clap if you believe. Rocky smiles a little. That could work, he says. After the meeting, Johnny calls to tell me that my dad is in the hospital. Apparently, Dad forgot he could not walk without a walker. He stood up, then fell down, fracturing his hip. I go to the hospital after work. I bring the mirror and set it on one of the chairs in my father's room. He's sleeping. The nurse says that he was cursing all day. He said he was going to kick the doctor in the balls. <laughs> it's the Alzheimer's, she says. I nod, letting her believe what she wants to believe. Clap your hands if you believe that my father doesn't really want to kick the doctor in the balls. <laughs> I am not clapping. I explain to the nurse that we have a DNR, a do not resuscitate order for my dad. No heroic measures, I explain. Just keep him comfortable. Clap your hands if you believe in death. Believing in fairies is much easier, I think. Death is an end, an emptiness, a darkness. People want to believe in the light. Go to the light, they say. We fear the darkness and the unknown, the fairies in the ravine, the world behind the mirror. I set the stone tool beside the mirror. I sit by my father's bed and watch him breathe. His arms are loosely strapped to the rails of the hospital bed. The nurse had told me that they had to strap him down. He kept trying to get out of bed. His leg was broken and he couldn't walk at all, but he was still trying to get out of bed. My father's life has been shrinking over the past few years. He moved from his own house to an apartment in a senior residence. Then he moved from the apartment to a room in a, the Borden care home. Then he moved from that room into this shared room in a hospital where all he has is a bed and a table. My father is not conscious. He's lying on his side, his spine curved, his legs bent. A sheet covers him but I can see the outline of his body through the fabric. He looks smaller than he ever has before. The tube that snakes from beneath the sheet is dripping, dripping morphine into his veins. My father is dying, that's clear. Here's a question. Do I stay and keep watch? Sit by his bed and do what? Read a magazine? Think about his life? Not such a happy life by my lights. 
What would I like if I were the one lying on the bed? I would like to be left alone. So I go home, leaving the mirror on the table by the bed. Clap your hands and my father will die. Actually, I'm kidding about that. My father will die no matter whether you clap your hands or not. My father will die, I will die, and someday you will die. You can applaud or remain silent. Death won't care. You can choose to speed up your death by plunging from a balcony, from a bridge. But all the clapping in the world won't put it off forever. Some discussions of death make it sound all soft and warm, like falling asleep in a feather bed. But falling asleep implies waking up again. Death means not waking up, not being here, being with the fairies. An hour after I leave the hospital, a nurse calls to tell me my father has passed away. Here's what I think happened. My father curled up in the fetal position. He curled up as small as he could. Then he curled up even smaller, then smaller, then smaller still, until he was small enough to slip into the fairy mirror. You see, new fairies are not born. They are transformed through the fairy mirror. Flash and Godzilla could see that the way was open. Cats noticed that sort of thing. So they blocked the way, sleeping on top of the mirror to keep the fairies in and keep me out. They were protecting me. They aren't stupid. They know who opens those cans of cat food. <laughs> when the time was right, the fairies came through the mirror and took my father, who had shrunk small enough to fit, in, fit through the frame. He left his worn-out body behind, dressed in the unfortunate hospital gown. Like a snake abandoning its skin, my father slipped out of his body and emerged in the mirror. He felt better. All the life energy that remained in him was concentrated in his smaller form. Right now, he's hunting for mice among the rushes. He's chipping a tool out of stone. He knows how. He'll scavenge a pencil, make a spear, go hunting for frogs. That's what I choose to believe. I stop by the hospital to pick up my father's things. Late that night, I take the mirror to the train station. I walk down the gravel road, alert to every noise in the bushes around me. When I reach the train tracks, I head south. No one is there. A short distance from the benches and the ticket machine, the tracks go into a tunnel. I lean the mirror against the wall beside the tunnel entrance. Somehow it seems right to put it by the tunnel mouth near the entrance to the underworld. Well, maybe not quite the underworld. It isn't a very long tunnel. But it's still the closest thing to an underworld there is around here. My father had smoked when I was young. My early memories of him are tobacco-scented, wreathed in smoke. The father in those memories is strong and tall and energetic. He could sweep me up and toss me in the air, swing me by my arms until my feet left the ground. I take a pack of cigarettes from my pocket and I tear the cigarettes open one by one. I scatter the tobacco on the ground in front of the mirror. I'm mixing my magic systems, I know. Native Americans offered tobacco to the spirits. The frogs call, something rustles in the bushes, a raccoon, or maybe something else. I sit by the train tracks near the mirror for a time. Every now and then, someone will commit suicide by walking in front of a train. It's a messy, noisy way to die. At home that night, I surf the web. On Rocky's site, I find he's been working on a fairyland. This is not a fairyland that would meet with Tiffany's approval. Yes, there are leafy groves, but the trees are gnarled and menacing, draped with Spanish moss. Little light reaches the forest floor. There's a fairy village, but the mud huts are neither elegant nor appealing. The carcass of a mouse, marked with the wounds that killed it, hangs curing in the shadows. There are no fairies in residence. I explore Rocky's fairyland carefully. In the dark, uh, in the dark 
I don't even know how to pronounce this word. In the I'm going to change it. In the dark crevice of a hollow oak, I find what I'm looking for, a tunnel that goes down, down, down into the underworld. I move my avatar through the darkness, the way illuminated by faintly glowing marks on the tunnel walls. I reach a dead end. A wooden door closed with a bar and a padlock blocks my way. I lay my hand on the door and the words, this way closed, glow on the bar in neon green. I know what to do. I reach out to the letters and touch the D, then the E, then the A, T, H, death. Each letter winks out when I touch it. When I touch the H, the padlock and the bar dissolve. The door opens. I stand in the open doorway looking into the darkness. I listen, and in the distance I hear the low wail of a train's whistle, the rumble of metal wheels on tracks. I catch a faint scent of wild fennel and tobacco. The way is open, but I don't need to go there. I will stay in the world. I do not want to be with the fairies just yet. At work the next day, I see Rocky in the lunchroom and pull a chair up next to him. I visited Fairyland last night, I tell him. He glanced at me, startled. I particularly liked your attention to detail in the hollow oak. He can't help himself. He's smiling now, a little smug, more than a little arrogant. Nice trick on the password. That surprised him. You open the door? My turn to nod. Obviously, I didn't go in. He's considering me now, eyes narrowing. Not interested just now, I say. I study him for a moment, face as soft as a boy's, the arrogant confidence of the young in his eyes. Forever young. I've been wondering where you got the name Rocky, I say. It comes from Peter, doesn't it? Smiling, slyly smiling, he's a mischievous boy with the power of death in his hands. Disney kept the happy moments but left out the essence. When Wendy's mother thinks about Peter Pan, she remembers this. When children die, Peter Pan goes partway with them, partway to the fairyland where the dead people are. Maybe later, he says. That goes without saying. His smile grows wider. The door is always there. The next day, at the 22nd Street Station, I look for the mirror. It's gone. Perhaps someone who needed a mirror picked it up. I hope they have a cat to protect them. <laughs> I sit by the tracks, waiting for the train. The sun is warm on the bench. The swallows are feeding their young. And right now, life is good. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.